So today we'll be continuing. If you, you've been with us for the past couple months, we've been going through the book of Exodus. So I invite you guys to turn with me to Exodus chapter 13 in your Bibles. Um, you can read from any version. It could be Apple or Android, <laughs> but as long as you turn to Exodus chapter 13. Um, now last week, because we are going through the whole book of Exodus, we know that last week we went through Exodus 12 and 11. And so just a little bit of, of background. So last week, our brother Adrian preached on um, the namesake of this book, which is the actual exodus, the actual exiting of God's people from slavery in the land of Egypt. And then you know, we learned that not, not only does God save his Said, lest the people change their minds when they see 
war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. As we consider this text today, let's come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word. That just by reading your word, it is enough to, to mold us and shape us into the image of the Son. I pray that we put ourselves and submit ourselves to the, the authority of your word, to your authority, God. In the same way that your people we place under your authority for your purposes and for your glory. So I pray that your agenda and your purpose would be the priority during this time. That we would only see you. We pray these things humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I was in high school, um, I, I went to a Christian high school, and so we had this class. It's called Christian Living. And I believe in the sophomore year, we had a final exam. And in our final exam, our, our teacher gave us the opportunity for extra credit, for bonus points. And, and, and the way you can get bonus points is if you have memorize certain verses, okay? And so during this time, that's when kids started pulling up the, the John 3, 16s and, and all those stuff, right? Like the, the common verse Genesis 1, 1. But for me, they weren't ready for me because I had a plan. I came in there with a game plan. And what I did was I memorized the Lord said to Moses. And I just kept quoting in which chapters and verses that shows up because it is a full verse. And so in Exodus 6.10, it says, the Lord said to Moses. In 7.8, it says, the Lord said to Moses. In 12.1, it says, the Lord said to Moses. There's some variations here and there where it goes like, and then the Lord said to Moses, but they don't count that. It's just like, as long as you get the essence of it. So 12 13-1, 14-1, 16-11, 25-1. Um, just six points right there. Bonus points. Easy, right? And, and you, you would not believe the reaction of my teacher. She just was astounded, just amazed at how ridiculous that was, but she still gave me the bonus points. But now, in, in retrospect, looking back in that event, and now reading through this passage, um, we, we first understand, we have to understand that everything written in the Bible is beneficial for God's people. So no matter how short it is, or, or just how, you know, like it doesn't seem complete, we know that all these things are beneficial for God's people and serve a purpose. Now, when we see how this particular verse is used in this, in this chapter, we see it first where it says in verse 1 that then Moses said to the people. And then in 11 it says when the Lord, um, in verse let's see here, in verse 1 it says the Lord said to Moses. In verse 3, then Moses said to the people. We, we understand from last week that, again, God doesn't just deliver people from slavery and from sin, but he delivers them and saves them for a purpose, for, for his purposes. So not only saved from sin, but they are saved into a family. They're saved to become a people, an independent people of God. And so in verses 1 and 3, when we see things like um, the Lord saying to Moses, and then Moses saying that exact same thing to God, 
what he gives us here is a framework for the people of God. That these two sentences, this is the framework for what it means to be the people of God. That God will give his instruction to his prophet, give his instruction to the preacher. And the preacher and the prophet gives that instruction to the people. And so God's people will be identified, will be marked by hearing God's word and obeying God's word. That will be the definition of the people of God. God's people will be identified by their obedience to his word. God brings his word to Moses. Moses brings the word to God's people and so forth. Nothing more and nothing less. I, I need to emphasize that we do not add, we do not subtract anything from the word of God. We, we preach it as it is. We don't add our own opinions to it, what we think it means. We, we preach it as it is and we take it, we obey it for what it is. In the same way today, preachers, pastors, we deliver God's word to his people for their obedience, for God's glory. Because why? It is our obedience to God that sets us apart from the world. That, that's the purpose of this, that, that God would select the people for himself and set them apart for his glory and for his purpose. And they will be marked by their obedience to God for his glory and our good. Now, here's the key to understanding why we obey God. In verse 2, it says this. This is God speaking to Moses. It says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Here's the key to obeying God, obeying God in his word. Uh, the first step to this is really understanding that it all belongs to him, that everything belongs to God. There, there's no part of creation that God doesn't cry out, mine. It is all his. And so we need to get that straight. We need to get that clear in our hearts, in our minds, that, that when we give to God, we are not giving God his cut. We're not giving God his share. Instead, that all things belong to him. And in his grace, he chooses to impart to us, to give to us, even though we don't deserve it. It's a fundamental understanding of, of who does it all belong to? Does it ultimately belong to me and then I just give God what's convenient? Or does it all belong to God and out of his grace he gives to me? Out of his abundance he gives to me. Clearer that everything belongs to God than his ability and free will to kill the firstborn of Egypt? That he chooses to kill some and save some? Nothing demonstrates that more clearer than him choosing to slay the Egyptians and spare the Israelites out of his own choosing. And this principle, it later extends to the people of Israel when, when he asked them to observe the Sabbath, the first day of your week. And, and, and it extends to us and giving our tithes and all these things. Like It extends to us that when we observe these things, it is not out of tradition. We don't do these things. We don't obey these things because um, this is what... Um, my ancestors did, but instead we do it because God commanded in his word that he owns all of it. And so we do these things out of an understanding that God owns all of it. So that is the first point of, of this message. Like God um, does these things to, to set apart a people. And secondly, when he sets apart a people, he sets them apart 
for a purpose. And in this purpose, we see um, not just purpose for his people, but even a purpose for the things that he tells us to do. So when he tells us to only eat unleavened bread, it's not just because it's random, like, but there's, there's a sense to it. So let, let's look at what this means. In verses 3 to 7, he explains what, in, what is involved in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so just a little bit of, to, to make it clear for us, I actually had to ask somebody, like, somebody who's in the culinary field, like, what exactly is leaven? Like, what, what are we talking about? Because, like, I, I can't just read this and not understand it. So, leaven, apparently, it's like, if you're, if you eat fluffy bread, like, it's, it's fluffy, it's because it has leaven. But if you eat Korean type of bread, it's all flat bread, it doesn't have leaven. So, leaven is, is what you put in the bread so that it becomes fluffy, fluffy and gives it that texture. In Mr. 12, which, which our brother Adrian shared with us, last week in 12 14 to 20 this is the first time that god gives the instruction to moses at this point in 13 it is moses giving the instruction to the people what's amazing about that is in that part of chapter 12 instruction to to only eat unleavened bread before it was actually fulfilled before his purposes were fulfilled for this commandment he already gave them this instruction because in 12 14 to 20 we see the instruction but the fulfillment of it, we don't see till verses 33 to 34. So let me just read that for us real quick so we could see what I'm talking about. In chapter 12, 34, this is the fulfillment of God's instruction. It says, so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And continuing 37 to 39. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and, and, very, much, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened any provisions for themselves. So what does this tell us? What does this tell us about God? Well, number one, it tells us that God did not forget his promise. The promise to free his people, to set them free from slavery, he remembers. He is a God who remembers, did not forget his people. He is a faithful God, and we'll learn more about that later. But now there's a second thing that God asks his people to observe, and that is the consecration of the firstborn. And we see that in first when he instructs Moses about that in verses 1 to 2. And then when Moses instructs the people in 11 to 13. So let me just read that real quick for us, 11 to 13. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now, as the instruction for the consecration of the firstborn. Now, now what does consecration mean? It's not a word we use a lot nowadays, but, but consecration essentially means to set apart, to dedicate, to set aside. And, and more specifically, that's what it means to be made holy. That holiness isn't just about being goody two-shoes, but holiness means being set apart specifically for God. And so in, in the consecration of the firstborn, there's two kinds of firstborns that God gives an instruction to consecrate, to set apart. Number one is the animals. Is the animals. 
And so when you consecrate, the way you dedicate the animals to the Lord is you kill them. You sacrifice them to God. And if there is an animal that they consider in their culture to be unclean, you sacrifice an animal that was clean in behalf of the unclean animal. And if you chose not to redeem it, you killed it. You killed it. So there's an option. If you want to redeem it, you could do it. But if you don't want to redeem it, you could just kill it. So there's an option to it. And the principle behind it is that the unclean are spared, are saved by the sacrifice of the clean. As a principle behind it. But this, this takes an interesting turn when we look at what it means to consecrate the firstborn of man. Firstborn of man. Because all of a sudden when we see the firstborn of man and how you're to consecrate them and to set them apart, it's not optional. There's no option of if you don't want to consecrate your firstborn, you can break its neck. There's no option for that. Instead, it's mandatory. You always redeem the firstborn of man. Every single one must be redeemed with a lamb. But what that tells us is that all men are unclean. They are by nature unclean and, and require a substitute, require redemption. Um, in, in this point in their history, in this point of the people's history, they redeemed them by sacrificing a lamb on behalf of their children. Fast forward to Numbers chapter 3, which I will turn there right now. You guys can turn there as well. Numbers 3, verses 44 to 51. Um, this principle will be upgraded in a different way. It says in verse 44, all the way to 51. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites, that is the priestly nation of Israel, instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. And as the redemption price for the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel, over and above the number of male Levites, you shall take five shekels per head. You shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of 20 geras, and give the money to Aaron and his sons as the redemption price for those who are over. So Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above, those redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the people of Israel, he took the money, 1,365 shekels, by the shekel of the, of the sanctuary. And Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons, according to the word of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, why is this significant? Why do I bring this up? So here we sacrifice a lamb in behalf of the firstborn. Later on, what this would do, it would be an exchange. That somebody's son will be offered up for complete service unto the Lord so that you would have your son. Somebody will step in to take your place from the tribe of Levi. A Levite takes the place of an Israelite for service to God. So what does this mean for the Israelites? What does it mean for the people that we are reading about in this chapter? These things that they will do represents what God did for them. That God slaved them from slavery by the sacrifice of a lamb, spared them from death by the sacrifice of a lamb, and sets them apart by giving them these statutes, these things to follow. What does this mean for us? If that's what it means for the Israelites, what does this mean for us? Well, these things represent 
what God did for us. We may not have been saved from a nation of slavery, but we have been saved from our sin, forgiven of our sin, spared from eternal death, and, and also set apart as God's holy people. The, the church of God, the church of Christ, um, continues the legacy of God's people to be set apart for his purposes, marked by their obedience to God. That's what it means for us. So as God's people, we don't do what we do based on tradition. We don't do what we do based on what other people do. But instead we do what we do because God commanded it. Because it is God's word. That's why we do the things that we do. And so one of the key indicators, one of the key things that, that shows that we really understand this, according to the passage, one of the key things that shows that we really understand this principle is if this principle invades our homes. If this principle invades our homes, that shows that we really do understand this. Because look at verse 8 in Exodus 13. It's a common instruction between both observances. In, in verse 18, it says, You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. In verses 14 to 15, And when in time, in, in time to come, your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. What is this saying? He's saying that there's going to come a time in your life, in your family's life, where you're going to have to have that talk. That talk with your son, your child. Like, like your son is going to see these things happening. Like, like, Dad, why, when you have a perfectly good, you know, donkey or animal, why is it that you kill a lamb in, in its place? Like, Dad, why do you do these things? And so these verses, they were absolutely powerful, personal to the Israelites. Because if you look at the wording, at the reasoning that, that is said here, it's like, for when we, when I, that God, for me, did these things, brought us out as very personal, very powerful um, message here. And also, when you offered up your son again, your firstborn son, during the first month, when you did this, they wouldn't have remembered that you also offered a lamb at the same time. They wouldn't remember that. They'll see what you do with the animals in the future. And so when they didn't know what was going on before, there's going to come a time when your kids will wise up. They'll learn to think for themselves and understand things and learn things. And when they come to that time, we need to be ready to give an answer. When they ask the important questions, we need to be able to give an answer. And so when I, when I talk about family, I want to talk to two particular groups of people right now. First, I want to talk to the parents, and I want to talk to the children. Parents, what this means for you is this. Because I said so isn't going to cut it anymore. It's not an enough reason for the things that you tell your kids. It, it can't be because I said so. It's not going to cut it. It has, to be, it has to come from a home ruled by God. And so when you tell your kids to do something, it better be because God commanded it. And so when I say this, I want to protect your children the same way by telling you that means you need to know God's word. 
Because you can't say that God commanded this if you don't know God's word. So I humbly ask you, know God's word. Don't just scare them with, with, with you know, false commandments by God. Like, oh, you know, God commanded you to do your chores. Like, like, is there a chapter and verse for that? No, like, it has to come from God's word. So you have to know God's word. Let me put this in another way. And again, I, I humbly lay this before you, and I humbly ask you this question. Because for the people of Israel, the commands of God were core. It's what marked them as a people. It's what identified them as a people. The commands of God, that it would be lived out by the parents, it would be lived out by the kids, and they would pass it down every generation so that they would never forget. That's the purpose of it. So let me ask you this. In your household's list of priorities and the things you have to do in your day, how high up there is the spiritual growth of your children? How high up in your list of priorities is their spiritual formation, their love for the Lord, their love for God's word, their desire to obey him, their desire to put sin to death in their lives? How high up is there? And I know for a lot of us, we, we think, like, it's pretty high up there, you know, because I'm a Christian. I take them to church. But let me ask this. Against awards, AP classes, college applications, soccer practice, and dance rehearsals, how high up there is their obedience to God? Against the daily things that your kids do, high, how high up there is their obedience to God, their love for the Lord? Do we, do we model that for them? Like when we come to the gathering of believers, when we come to church, are we present? Like I'm not saying like sitting in the chairs, but I'm saying present, listening to God's word, have our Bibles opened up, and, and really just exploring God's word together in our homes. Is that what our houses look like? Because this was key in God's people. And it's key for us as now God's people. So now I speak to the children. When your parents faithfully walk in these things, do not despise them. Do not despise these things. But instead, long for these things long and desire and pray for a, for a father and a mother that, that follows the Lord faithfully and believes God's word, want these things, desire for these things. Encourage your parents to these things. You pray for them. You, you plead with the Lord, I, I want my parents to know you, God, to follow you, to honor you with all of their lives. Here's another thing I want to tell you children, you in, in junior high, high school, college, whatever stage of life you're in, you can be a child and still and, and work, be working, you're still a child of your parents. Let me guarantee you this. When you faithfully follow this principle, it will and it should set you apart from your friends. It will and it should make you different. When you faithfully abide and faithfully follow these things, and let me tell you this, that is not a bad thing. That is not a bad thing. It is guaranteed in the Bible that wherever you are, you will be estranged and unfamiliar if you faithfully live by God's word, and that is not a bad thing. 
It is not a wrong thing. It is a good and holy thing to be different for the sake of God. What this means is sometimes we have to die to some of our passions, die to some of our desires, but ultimately understanding that this will be the difference between a life with God and a life without God. It's a big difference, a life with God and a life without God. Let me fast forward this illustration a little bit like probably in your 20s or 30s when you're considering marriage. This is why it's so important to find a spouse who loves the Lord like you do. That you both love the Lord. That, that what, if these things are so core to who you are, it will be very difficult if the person you're going to spend the rest of your life with, it's not. You need to find somebody that loves the Lord. You need to make sure that you love the Lord. Because what if your spouse loves the Lord and you don't? It has to be core in our lives, core in our hearts. So in the daily life, what does the people of God look like? In verses 9, 10, and 16, it talks about it being the front list between our eyes. It would be on our hands, in our mouth. And what does that mean? When it says in our hands, it means that we do it. We live out God's commandments. It is in practice. And what is between our eyes, what is between our eyes? Our brains, our minds. It is always in our thoughts, and in our mouths. It is to be our testimony. It is to be what comes out of our mouth or what flows out of our mouth. Not only that, it, it carries over when it is in your mouth. It is for teaching, for instruction. That's what it means. That's what the daily, what a daily home household that, that lives for God looks like. That they do these things in practice, in thought, in their testimony, in their teaching. And, and for what purpose that God, does God place these things on his people? For this one purpose, to develop a fear of God. That he be constantly in your thoughts, constantly in your life, motivating all that we do. Let me give you two passages. In Isaiah 43, verses 20 to 21. It says, The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, to the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. And in 1 Peter 2, chapter 9, it says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. These are lives dedicated to God, lives dedicated to the Lord, set apart for his purpose and his glory. As we close, we look at the tail end of this. After seeing the purpose of God's people and, and God's purpose for giving his people these things to obey, we look at God's promise. In verses 17 to 18, we see that God is a God that knows everything, even our limitations. In 17, it says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness 
toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. What this shows us is that God recognizes our limitations. He does not expect us to go beyond what we are able to. And can I tell you what that means? It gives us freedom to be normal. Because some people have this false understanding that as a Christian, you have to live an extraordinary life. Like you have to be, you know, like just defined by excellence in everything that you do, like whether it's in your career, in your studies, like being a Christian does not guarantee straight A's. Being a Christian does not guarantee a bonus from the boss. Being a Christian does not guarantee a big house. Yet you're free to be normal. Because a lot of the things that God does in our lives, he does it in the normal everyday things, the normal and plain things. So we know that God recognizes our limitations and he also takes the initiative. In fulfilling his purposes, God always takes the first step. What that does for us is that it gives us freedom to trust him. If we know that God takes the first step, if God takes the initiative and it has to come from him, it gives us the freedom to trust him. He teaches us not to rely on our own finite abilities, but to rely on God's infinite abilities. We go to verse 19, and this verse is really a humbling verse. If you look at it, it says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Now, that sounds familiar. That is actually towards the end of our previous series in the book of Genesis. In the last chapter of Genesis 25, by, by the time that Joseph dies, he makes the people promise him that when they see the fulfillment of God's promises, that they would bring his body there. So that is in Genesis 50, verse 25. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones from here. And then Joseph died. Joseph died. And what do we learn about Joseph? We learn that he's a man that trusted God's character. They didn't trust his circumstances, but trusted God's character. In Hebrews eleven twenty-two, he is remembered for this. Amazing thing about this is that he's not remembered for the great things he's done, but he's remembered for his faith. In Hebrews eleven twenty-two, it says this. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Moses trusted in something that would happen not until 360 years later. Because why? He trusted in God's character. Now, now when you look at that, you see somebody trusting and placing their faith in something they will never see by worldly standards, that's a failure, that's a disappointment. By worldly standards. And you look at it, it is a cold, hard reality. Joseph enters the promised land as a bag of bones, dead, never to lay his eyes on it, never seeing it for himself. But, but if you look at Joseph's life, especially when we went through this book, he lived an exemplary life. Extraordinary life, not, not something that people go through every day. Story of redemption, story of salvation, and, and just redeeming his brothers. Amazing life for Joseph. God had in store for Joseph. But in the end, he's not remembered for the greatness of his life. He is remembered for his faith. Trusting is something he would not see. 
trusting in God himself, not what God can give him. Trusting in God's character. Now, now my question why I bring this up is that, are we okay with this? As a people of God, people to live by faith, are we okay to trust in things that we may never see? Are we okay with that? Or when we expect things and we don't see it, we blame God and we're disappointed? Or are we okay with this? Can we still live a life of obedience while knowing this, that some of the things that God promises us, we may never see? Knowing that, can we still faithfully obey God with joy and gladness in our hearts? Let, let me make this more you know, personal for us. Like what this looks like, what does it mean to, to see the fulfillment of God's promises, see all these magnificent things done by God, but not see it for ourselves or not be recognized for these things? Um, when we started a series of Exodus, um, Pastor Reggie preached for three weeks for us, and in the beginning of every sermon, he, he shared a life testimony from CCF. Uh, he would show it on, on the videos. And, and the amazing thing is, like, these people's lives transformed lives, great things done by God in their lives. Let me ask you this. Does anybody remember their names of the people that we saw um, testify of the greatness of God? My question is, are we content with our names never being known, never being remembered, but be faithful to what God has called us to, to be faithful in our obedience and glad and humble submission to God. We still find joy in that. And in 20 to 21, as we close, see a wonderful picture of God's faithfulness to his people. And they moved from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night, all the way to 22. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Here's God's promise. He promises his constant presence in the lives of his people never forgetting, never abandoning them, even though they feel abandoned and even they feel forgotten, he never does. This is our hope. This is actually the only hope for believers. We don't place our hope on ourselves. We place our hope solely on God. It is about God. It's about his faithfulness. The story is not primarily about us. It's not primarily about the people of Israel. It is primarily about God and his faithfulness. Look at everything, almost all the action words that happen in this passage, it is all accredited to God, rightfully so. Here's the amazing thing. By remembering his people, by God remembering his people, he displays for all to see his faithfulness. And when people see his faithfulness, he is glorified. He glorifies himself. And what a great God. I invite you to pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. It is living and active. It is true and trustworthy. In the same way your word was true for the people of Israel, we know that it is true for us today. It is not without purpose. 
It is not without meaning that you give us these things to obey and to follow, but instead, in all of these things, we ought to remember you. We ought to remember you in our, in our own lives, in the lives of our families, in the lives of our children, that every single aspect of our lives would be bathed in your purpose, bathed in your will and obedience to you. Father, I pray in a, in a world that is consumed by comfort and convenience, I pray that your call to us to obey and follow you and, and lay aside things that get in the way of that, we'd see the meaning in that, and we'd see that to be our main goal. Lord, I pray that you be the one to make these words be the truth in our hearts. Pray for those that are walking with you in this moment. You would strengthen us, enable us to do these things, to obey you in this way, to love you and desire you in this way, to be your people. You'd enable us to. And Father, I pray for those who may not be part of your people, who may not have experience your promised redemption. Father, we confess and we remember that, that these things, that the salvation of man, the deliverance of us from our sins, comes from your initiative and your initiative alone. It is only you who can change our hearts, the most inward parts of our lives. So we ask that you would speak powerfully to those who are still on the brink, still hesitant to, to offer their lives to you, that you would enable them to do so, so that they would walk in obedience to you. Father, I humbly ask that you would use everything in our lives to transform us, to make us more and more like you, to grow in our love for you, to grow in our understanding of your word, to grow in our desire to be your people. We humbly ask you to cause these things in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. These are your discussion questions. Again, if you're new to CCFLA, we do have um, breakout groups. And so what we do is we discuss several things that um, stood out to us from the message. And we only have two questions for today. And number one, it is, what circumstances has God used in your life to strengthen your faith in him? Now, I don't want to assume anything. And so when I ask, it's like, some people's faith are being strengthened, but some people may not even have the faith yet. So if that is where you are right now, please don't feel pressure or shame, but, but we're more than willing and, and we'll lovingly walk with you through these things. So um, this is a, a place, a safe place for you to be open about these doubts and thoughts. And number two, in what ways are you being called towards greater obedience to God's word in your life right now? What are the things that, that prevents you from pursuing him in, in complete obedience in your life right now? And so in what ways is he calling you to, to step out in those things? So those are your discussion questions. And with that, you are dismissed.